There we go. I think it's on. Can you all hear me? All right. It is a, such a pleasure to be here. This is very encouraging uh, to see what God is doing here with all of you. Um, I don't know if you always have a sense of it when you're a part of a church, but this is a miraculous thing that God is doing as he is um, building new communities of love all over the world. And, and y'all are part of that growth of the church that's been happening now for 2,000 years. So thank you for your part here at Watershed Church. Um, it's been great having a friendship with Kyle and Lindsay. Uh, they interned with us for a couple of years before they uh, came out here to start the church. Um, and we've been also studying together as we study Galatians each week. So that's been really encouraging for me personally is just having someone to bounce ideas off of. Two weeks ago, I just completely ripped off his outline. Uh, I told my church that, so I wasn't you know, being dishonest. But it's been really helpful uh, to share ideas and to study together. So I'm thankful as well for that. Just thankful for partnership. If you have a Bible, if you could open it up to Galatians, we're going to be in Galatians chapter 4 and we're continuing this series that we've been studying at our church in Colleen uh, and I know y'all have been studying here as well, Centered. And the idea with the Centered series is that uh, we all need something to center our lives on, right? We all need something that directs us. Um, the artwork is like a compass point. We need something that shows us which way to go when everything goes crazy in our life. And Paul has been arguing in Galatians that the center of our life should be the good news of Jesus Christ. That ultimately is what directs us. Um, I want to, uh, before I get into the sermon, I meant to introduce my family too as well. So I just realized I've got a, a picture here out of order in the slides. Here's a picture of my family uh, so you know who I am so I'm not just like a, this disconnected person up here. Uh, I've got three kids and uh, that fourth kid in the middle is my wife um, who's with me today. So I've got on the left my eighth grader, Karis. Uh, on the far right, my senior, Kirsten. Uh, and the boy who, this picture's a year old. He's now officially bigger than me. Um, the boy, his name is Compton. So anyway, that's my family, a senior, a sophomore, an eighth grader. Um, my wife and I have been married almost 22 years. This summer will be 22 years. So that's crazy. That's awesome. Um, so thankful to celebrate with them. This week as we continue the, wait, I got to point this way. So we continue the series, we're calling it Gospel-Centered Relationships. So today we're going to be in chapter 4, and I share my family uh, also to connect with the sermon because probably family is the best place to learn about healthy relationships, but also the best place to learn about unhealthy relationships, right? I mean, if, if we're going to be honest, um, we've all endured awesome, loving relationships and terrible, dysfunctional relationships. We've all had those kinds of relationships in our life. And what Paul is going to demonstrate in chapter 4 is what a gospel-centered relationship should look like. And so throughout the New Testament, we're always told to, to live a certain way because God has loved us in a certain way, right? And the classic passage is 1 John four nineteen that says, we love because he first loved us. And so throughout Galatians, we've been learning about the unconditional love that God had for us in Jesus. So specifically with the Galatians, they don't have to become Jews before they can be acceptable to God. They don't have to uh, be of a different neighborhood or different family or different tribe or different race. But God accepts them through Christ. And so all of us, by faith in Christ, he delights in us as his very own children. And so Paul now turns, uh, where he's been talking more theologically about all that that Jesus gives us, and he now turns to a more kind of practical picture here of, hey, this is, this is what that looked like in our relationship. He's talking to the Galatians and saying, we had a relationship like this. Because God loved me unconditionally, I loved you unconditionally. And that 
gospel-centered relationship then becomes a model for us. So we, we, have, we have here a model for what church, ministry, pastoral relationships should look like, but also really any relationship. So let's read chapter 4, verses 12 through 20. Um, and I left my big Bible in my office. I'm reading my son's tiny Bible, so hopefully I'll be able to see. I'm just at that age where I can barely see this now. So uh, starting in verse 12. Brothers, I entreat you, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. You did me no wrong. You know it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. What then has become of the blessing you felt? For I testify to you that if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? They make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out that you may make much of them. It's always good to be made much of for a good purpose, and not only when I'm present with you. My little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you, I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone, for I am perplexed about you. Let me pray and ask God to uh, teach us, and then we'll look at this in more detail. God, we thank you for your word. I just thank you for the privilege of, of being here with friends in another town and pray, God, that you would teach us this morning. We thank you for the good news that Paul has just been hammering uh, again and again throughout Galatians, that, that we are accepted because of what Christ has done, that our sins no longer separate us from you, but Jesus paid the price for those sins and his righteousness is given to us. And God, you know that that is hard for us to believe. It's hard for us to believe if we have great pride because uh, we want to contribute to our salvation. And it's hard for us to believe if we have great shame because we, we want to think we're unforgivable. But God, the, the gospel tears that down on, on both sides. We, we're loved because of what you've done and we, we thank you for that uh, and pray that you'd help us to figure out what that looks like in, in relationships as, as Paul teaches us today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I've enjoyed over the years hearing uh, the story that my mother-in-law would tell of how her mom, who we called Mama, uh, how Mama, her Mama would take care of her. Um, when my mother-in-law was a, a little kid, she was sickly, had hay fever and asthma and allergy issues and would get really sick. Um, and so around the ages of five, six, seven, sometimes she would just be coughing and wheezing and have trouble sleeping. And so uh, when she was really sick, her, her mom, who we called Mama, Mama would just sit by the bed and watch her just to make sure she was okay, uh, take care of her. I'm sure she, you know, had rags and medicine and things, but she would just sit up with her watching her. And so my mother-in-law would talk about falling asleep, you know, having, having trouble being able to sleep and drifting off feeling secure because her mom was right there with her, watching over her bed. And she'd fall asleep and then she'd wake up again coughing and she'd look up and she was still there watching over her. And she said this would happen on and off throughout the entire night, waking, falling back to sleep, waking again, seeing her mother sit by her side, watching over her, caring for her, sacrificially loving her. And then they were farmers in the 50s out, out in Slato, not too far from here. The next day her her mom would then be out in the fields picking cotton all day long in the sun. And so this just stuck out for her as this memory of sacrificial love of someone who would stay up all night with her watching over her because she cared for her and still then having to go work out in the fields the next day. 
As I said before, family is often a, a place where we get a little window of God's love because God, just in the previous passage, tells us that he loves us like a father who dearly loves his children. And then in this passage, Paul is saying, I'm laboring over you like I'm, I'm trying to give birth here to see Christ formed in you. So Paul's appealing to this idea of parental love. Now I know all of us, like I said earlier, have had a mix of, of both uh, good and bad relationships, right? So for some of you, if you grew up with a, with a bad picture of what that's supposed to look like, I would just appeal to you uh, that God is saying he's got something better for you, right? The, the, the very idea that you know that your relationships were dysfunctional points to the reality that you, you know there's something better out there. And God in the scripture says he is, he is that something better. He is what love is supposed to look like. And so we have this model then that Paul is working out for us saying, this is what it's supposed to look like. This is the kind of relationship I had with you. And he's going to contrast it with the false teachers who had really a selfish relationship. So a gospel-centered relationship is one that's motivated by the love of God. So again, 1 John 4, 19, because he first loved us, we love each other. Uh, because he forgave us in Christ, we forgive each other. That model is uh, throughout the New Testament. And Paul's going to work that out practically for us here in Galatians 4. I want to start with just the first verse, with verse 12. Gospel-centered relationships are transparent. So if you just look at verse 12 again, we'll see this idea that a gospel-centered relationship is transparent. What I mean by that is it's, it's just there. It's just out there. There's no falseness. There's no fakeness. It's not plasticky, but it's real. That's a, that's a sign of a healthy relationship. This is how Paul says it. He says, brothers, I entreat you, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. You did me no wrong. So he starts off here just saying this kind of gospel principle of follow me, and I was willing to flex and become a little bit like you. Um, he works this out in more detail in another passage. You don't have to turn to it, but I'll read it to you. This is a famous passage in 1 Corinthians 9, where Paul kind of works out this idea of his willingness to accommodate people, right? Um, to, to be like them on the little things, to get them to be like him on the biggest thing of all, that's submitting to trusting in God's love for us. So Paul was always willing to say, I'll be like you on the little things, I'll compromise, I'll flex, um, I'm not going to make a big deal out of secondary issues, but this big issue, I'm going to ask you to be like me. Trust God. Trust that God loves you. Trust this gospel message. This is how Paul describes it in 1 Corinthians 9, 19. He says, for though I am free from all, I've made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them. To the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but I'm still under the law of Christ, he says, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings. So this is one of the biggest things we mix up as Christians is we often think uh, that discipleship or faith is looking like me in every way, right? And, and we, start to, we start to pass on weird traits, you know, that, well, if you really want to be a good Christian, you've got to like the kind of songs I like. If you really want to be a good Christian, you've got to cut your hair the way I cut my hair. If you really want to be a good Christian, you've got to wear the clothes that I wear. And, and Paul's saying, no, that that's all secondary stuff. That, that doesn't really matter. If, if you want to follow me, follow me as I follow Christ. Follow me in my, my trust of him. 
And he's kind of shown that pattern already throughout Galatians where he keeps saying, we should be like Abraham who trusted God. We shouldn't be like Abraham and how he lied about his wife and got into all this kind of trouble, right? You know, I mean, there's, there's things we should imitate and then there's things we should not imitate. And Paul always brings it back to the faith issue. A gospel-centered relationship is going to be transparent and we're just going to be up front and say, I, I hope you would find faith in my great Savior. I, I love him. I want you to love him too. I want to invite you to follow me as I follow him. Uh, do you have to live in the neighborhood I live in? No. Do you have to drive the car I drive? Well, no. Do you have to, you know, act like me in every way? No. There, there's, a, there's an old vaudeville routine that you've probably seen in different movies. It, it came up in the movie Young Frankenstein. Anybody seen that movie? I may be dating myself. Um, Igor. Is it Igor? Igor? The weird guy, you know, that's hunched over. He says, walk this way, right? You know, and then he kind of walks and drags his foot. And so the, the humorous routine is then the person following him follows like him, you know, imitates his mannerisms. That's not what Paul is saying here, right? When Paul says, follow me, but I was willing to become like you, he's saying there was a balance there. There's a balance there of a healthy transparency, of a healthy flexibility, of both honesty about, yeah, I want you to follow me, go, go the direction I'm going, but he's not saying, imitate my limp, uh, talk with my accent. You know, he's not bringing it down to that kind of cultural level. But that's what the Jews wanted these Gentiles to do. The, the Jews wanted these non-Jews to become like them in every way. And they said, God can't accept you through Christ. That's not enough. You also have to imitate us in all of our cultural boundary markers. You also have to take on circumcision. You also have to observe the feast days. You also have to observe the holidays. You have to do all these other things. It's not enough to just trust Christ. And that was the message that the Jews were preaching to the Gentiles. And that's what Paul is fighting against. He's saying, no, just, just imitate me in the main thing. Follow my faith. Walk this way. Walk towards Jesus. But you don't have to imitate my mannerisms. You don't have to imitate everything about me. Gospel-centered relationships are, are transparent. It's just all out there on the table. There's no hiding. There's no faking it. We're, we're clear. I, I want you to know this God that I know. I, I want you to understand how great his love is for us. That's what Paul has spent four chapters explaining. This love is so incredible that there's nothing we could have done to win his love, but it's all about what he did for us through Christ. Christ took our sins upon himself. Christ gives us his righteousness, and by faith, we can be accepted before God. We can walk with him. We can know him. We can be in his family. And so, He's, again, reiterating that. Brothers, I entreat you, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. It's this gospel flexibility. It's this transparency, this openness. It's honest. It's flexible. Um, and that's the kind of relationship we should have with each other. And that's a hard thing to figure out as a church. That's messy, right? And so I just want to say we're, we're praying for you as we continually pray for our own congregation that God would bless you with the ability to work that out, Right? Because that can be taken in extremes. Um, you can begin to take it to the extreme of we're flexible so nothing matters, right? That's how a lot of our culture is going. So we no longer care about God's standards of holiness what, whatsoever, right? We don't even care about those things anymore. And we say, well, no, God, God still wants to change you. He wants to make you holy, but he doesn't necessarily want you all wearing the same color or listening to the same music or living in the same neighborhood. He, he wants to change you so that you love each other so that you're honest, so that you're faithful in your marriages, so that you are respectful, so that you're not killing each other and stealing from each other, right? He wants you to keep his law as holy people that begin to look like God because he loves you. 
but he doesn't want you to take on these external layers of, oh, I've got to look a certain way and dance a certain dance to impress certain people. He wants, he wants it to be real. Gospel-centered relationships are transparent. The next thing that Paul starts to unfold is really this is the harder one for us. This is that gospel-centered relationships endure suffering. Gospel-centered relationships endure suffering. And we see this in verses, I don't have it written down correctly there on the slide, but it's verses 13 through 15. In verses 13 through 15, um, we'll go back and read these. He says, you know it was because of a bodily ailment, a sickness, that I preached the gospel to you at first. So Paul is saying, like, that's how I ended up in your town, preaching the gospel. You know, today would be, you know, it's a little different because we don't travel by foot, you know, or by donkey, the same way they would have in that, that time. But, you know, imagine a preacher's traveling through and he gets sick and has to stay in the hospital in your town for six months. And, and then that's why he becomes your pastor, because he just is stuck there for six months. That's kind of the, the story that we understand took place here in Galatia. That Paul was sick, there was something wrong, and so he ended up getting stuck in Galatia, and that's why he preached the gospel to them. He's saying, that's how I ended up in your town. That's how I ended up preaching the gospel to you. It was because of sickness. And then he goes on and he says, and though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. So he's saying here, you received me as, as a messenger of God. It's like God had sent me to you, even though I was sick, right? Even though it was dirty and gross and you had to take care of me and it cost you uh, time and effort to care for me, still you saw me as if I was Christ himself because I was bringing the message of Christ. You, you saw me as an opportunity for God to give grace to you. And this is one of the craziest things about Christianity is that Christianity teaches that, that God can speak to us through hard stuff. Have y'all ever thought about that? I mean, that's just, we should be honest about that. That's just weird. That's kind of hard for us to handle. Because if you're like me, I don't like going through hard stuff, right? Like when I'm sick, I, I whine about it. You know, when things are going wrong at work or I'm having difficulty in relationships or I'm feeling depressed and down, I don't want to stay there. I want to get out of there as fast as possible. I want to run as fast and as hard from difficult things as I can. Um, y'all may not be that, y'all might be a lot, a lot tougher than me, right? But that's where I live, right? I just want to get away from it. And what Paul's saying here is, you know what? Gospel-centered relationships endure suffering. They recognize that a trial can actually be an opportunity for joy. That God can actually use hard things in our life. So, so Christianity says, hard things really are hard things, right? Christianity doesn't get into the kind of backwards talking, good is bad and bad is good. No, Christianity would say, yeah, sickness is sickness, and it's bad, and we, we want it to end. And our hope is that we're, we're moving forwards to a future heaven, the new heavens, the new earth, where everything's going to be made right, where we're not going to be sick anymore. That, that's our hope. We're looking forward to that. We're looking forward to pain and bad relationships and sickness being eradicated. The, the vision in Revelation is he's going to wipe away every tear from our eyes. Right? So we, we genuinely look forward to that. We genuinely call bad things bad, call good things good, Look forward to a future when everything's going to be good. But in the midst of that, we recognize the process that God is taking us through is he wants us to be like Jesus. He wants us to be like himself. And he endured the most terrible suffering to, to multiply joy and love and goodness for others. And so we've seen this work with Jesus. We've seen how God can reverse evil and death and sickness and pain and abuse in Jesus 
And so then we begin willing, being willing to step into that, right? Again, we don't pursue it, right? You don't, you don't want to become a crazy person that's like, ah, I want to suffer, right? I mean, that'd just be weird. But when that suffering comes to us, we can say, we can pray simultaneously. We can pray both of these prayers. God, please take this away from me as soon as possible. And God, help me to recognize what you might be doing in the midst of this. Do you think that's okay to pray that way? To pray, God, I don't want to suffer anymore. Please take it from me. We see that in the Psalms, this kind of honesty. And also pray, but God, I trust that you're always up to something better than I realize. Like there is supernatural joy that is going to ripple out of this in a way I can't even imagine. Because I know you're the kind of God that, that reverses evil and suffering for good. For your glory and, and for the good of other people. That's kind of what the Joseph story is all about. That's a beautiful picture of the Joseph story at the end of Genesis. His brothers come to him at the end. They're like, uh, yeah, our father told, told us to make sure you know not to murder us all, you know, once he's gone. <laughs> There's this really weird dynamic going on there at the end of the story. I encourage you to go read it at the end of Genesis. And he says, no, what, what you intended for evil, God intended for good. Like, that's how big God is. God's not evil. God doesn't do evil stuff. But somehow, God can take the worst evil that ever happened in the history of the world, the cross, and he can use it for the greatest good that's ever happened. Our salvation, the salvation of others, the salvation of the whole cosmos, right? The new heavens and new earth, sin and death being eradicated, heaven. All, all these things are coming because of what Jesus did on the cross. And so we have to recognize that that's how God works. Verse 15, coming, coming back to Paul's train of thought, he says, so he says, you receive me as an angel, as Christ himself. And then in 15 he says, uh, says this. Gosh, these words are so tiny. Uh, what then has become of the blessing you felt. For I testify to you that if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. Um, this is where a lot of people think Paul had like an eye issue. You know, in 1 Corinthians it says, he, he talked about praying about this thorn of the flesh being removed. We don't really know what it was. So there was some nagging issue he had. We don't really know what it is and we don't want to go into too much speculation. Uh, but in other letters he says, he signs a letter and says, see with uh, what's large, which with what large letters I write as I sign my name. You know, so here he's saying, I was sick and you would have gouged your eyes out for me. Uh, we know he was struck blind when he first met Jesus. We know he was sick. So a lot of people would say he had some kind of eye issue. You know, he had some kind of ongoing lifelong eye problem because he had to write giant letters. They were willing to gouge their eyes out and give them their eyes, right? So uh, just for context, we would assume that it was some sort of specific issue where he, he needed new eyes. He was broken. And he's saying, you loved me so much, you, you would have been willing to give me your eyes. That, that's how it was fleshed out. Um, so, so again here, a gospel-centered relationship would be one that, that endures suffering, that, that is willing to suffer for others. And again, we don't do that to earn favor with God. That's what we have to be clear on as Christians. That's what we always forget as Christians. We, we slip back into the, the earning favor thing right? Like impressing God. No, we, we are willing to suffer because God has suffered for us. We're willing to uh, sacrifice for others because God has sacrificed for us. We're willing to love at great cost to ourself because God has loved us that way. So, so that's Christian love is, is we're motivated by love to love. We're motivated by sacrifice to sacrifice. We're, we're motivated, motivated by someone who suffered for us to endure suffering for others. So we just want to always make sure we keep that order straight because that's where Paul's been going with the whole book. That's kind of what he's been saying over and over again. So we should be willing to endure suffering because Christ endured suffering for us. And Paul's saying, hey, this, 
This worked out. This was what our relationship was like. You were that way with me. I was that way with you. This was a gospel-centered relationship. And so that's part of why he's grieving because he sees them sliding away from gospel-motivated love and kind of coming under the, the lure of these false teachers who have more of a selfishly motivated love. There's a, a famous book called The Rise of Christianity by Rodney Stark. Uh, the subtitle is A Sociologist Reconsiders History. And so basically he spends a lot of time just as a historian slash sociologist uncovering the history of Christianity. And really one of the primary ways that Christianity grew throughout the last 2,000 years is these people being willing to sacrifice for others, right? Loving orphans and widows and epidemics, epidemics breaking out all over the Roman Empire and Christians being willing to get sick as they care for others, which is kind of very applicable for us right now as new epidemics and new diseases scare us, right? This is hard for us to understand as Christians because we're very isolated from suffering. Uh, I should say this is hard for us to understand as American Christians because as Americans, we're very isolated from the same kind of suffering that is just commonplace throughout the world. We don't really realize how good we have it. Um, and so we can kind of become distracted and kind of become lured away to what's sometimes called the prosperity gospel, where we want our heaven now, you know, where we get obs obsessed with building heaven here instead of understanding that the here and the now is, is to be willing to endure suffering for others. But that's what a gospel-centered relationship is. Any of you that's, that have really loved anyone for a long time, you've endured suffering, right? I mean, that's just how it works. If, if you have a long-term love relationship with another person, you endure suffering. And if you have a pattern of, of breaking that relationship whenever it gets difficult, then that, that means you don't really understand what true love looks like. Because God says true love looks like enduring suffering for someone else. And, and he challenges us with that. So gospel-centered relationships endure suffering. We should be willing to suffer for others. John Owen is an old Puritan guy. He's most famous for uh, writing this book called The Mortification of Sin. Um, and he talks about how we grow in our faith. And he says it this way. He says, more experienced Christians often have greater troubles, temptations, and difficulties in the world. God has new work for them to do. Owen's pointing out that but God, actually, if we're more mature, if we have a greater faith, often he allows us to go through difficult things because that helps us to be more like Christ. That gives us opportunities to bring the gospel, bring God's love into new relationships and into new situations. Elsewhere, Owen says sanctification is achieved by, by two means. He says these are two ways we're sanctified or made more holy. That's what sanctified means. So two ways, he says, this works in our life. Two ways we grow in our faith. Um, one is just faith itself, just trusting God, and two, through troubles and affliction. That was, that was Owen's worldview, that basically you grow by faith, by trusting in what Christ has done. One thing we've called ourselves to again and again in Galatians, trusting this awesome gift that, that God gives us in Christ, but then also troubles and affliction. Those are opportunities for us to grow. As we endure suffering and trust by faith that God is good, that's how we grow. And again, I know it's not popular. And I just want to reiterate, I'm a normal human like you are, and I don't, I don't want to suffer, right? Like, I want to run away from it as hard and as fast as I can. But the scripture, again and again, says, God's going to do something there. God's going to grow you. As you trust him in the suffering, he's going to grow you through this. Um, so there's two extremes, I think, that, that happens, uh, kind of two ditches we fall into. One is what's called the prosperity gospel, where, where we just want to build uh, our own heaven here. The other extreme, though, is a, is a poverty gospel 
where we would say, God is more pleased with me if I'm always seeking suffering, right? So I just want to clarify, we don't really choose our suffering. I would like to. I feel more heroic when I get to pick where I struggle, you know? But generally, it's chosen for us, right? You don't, you don't get to pick which difficult relationship you're going to be bound to. You don't get to pick uh, which disease is going to strike your body. You don't get to pick which people around you are going to struggle or go through pain. Suffering usually picks us. But in the midst of that suffering, if we have a gospel-centered relationship with them, with God, knowing God loves us at great cost to himself, we're going to be able to endure that suffering in a way that, that honors him. The, the last point that we want to underline here is that gospel-centered relationships pursue health. And this is kind of that parent, parental image that he gives of like, I'm, I'm in the pains of childbirth, uh, the anguish of childbirth here. Paul uses this idea uh, after talking of the fatherly love that God has for us. Now Paul slips into this idea of motherly love, of a great pains to myself. I'm, I'm trying to give birth to some maturity here in your life. I, I want to see you uh, trust Jesus, be more like Jesus. So in verse 16, he says it this way. Um, have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? So Paul's saying, uh, not only do I love you, I love you because Christ loved me, but I love you enough to tell you the truth, to challenge you. Verse 17, he says, they make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out that you may make much of them. It's always good to be made much of for a good purpose. And not only when I'm present with you, my little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone for I'm perplexed about you. Again, he's saying, this is blowing my mind that you're drifting away from the gospel because we had this, we had this relationship of love, of caring for each other because of the gospel. And now I see you being pulled away by these false teachers who, he says, shut you out. Um, in the NIV, it says it's something like this, like uh, they're zealous for you, but they're not really zealous for your good. They're zealous to win you over so they can have more followers, right? So there's this idea, Paul says, that it's good uh, to, to zealously uh, want uh, family and connection, right? It's, it's good for us to zealously fight for, hey, we're on the same team. Let's be with each other. Let's be unified. And he says that that's good as long as you're pursuing something good, as long as you're pursuing faith in Jesus. But he says these false teachers, they just want you on their team. They don't really want you. You know the difference? I don't know if you've been in relationships like that where, where someone uh, wants you as a, as a symbol of how great they are or they want you to make their ego feel better or they want you so that they can impress other people because they're connected to you, but they, they don't really care about you. Paul's saying uh, this is different for him because he's saying I, I have more of a parental relationship with you. How many? Raise your hand if you're a parent. Anybody here is a parent? Okay, so we got a lot of parents in the room. So, so you kind of get this, right? Um, there's this kind of myth of, of young parents wanting to have a kid so that they'll be loved, you know, which is heartbreaking. If you are a parent, you recognize, man, that's not the right reason to have kids. Right? <laughs> that is not how it works. You know, there are those little moments of, oh, you know, but those are small and few. Um, they're, they're glorious. They're wonderful, you know, when you feel loved as a parent. But that's not why you have kids. You have kids because hopefully you love your spouse. You have kids hopefully because you want to love these kids. You want to pour yourself out for them. And, and one of the amazing things about just how it works biologically is that just kids require us to pour our life out. You know, it's like kids not going to live if you don't pour your life out for them. That's just how it works. 
And so having kids is a training ground, in a sense, for us to understand what real love looks like. We begin learning to pour ourselves out. And if we don't think that the God of the universe poured himself out for us, we're going to become real bitter. We're going to become real bitter in that process. Because you're going to pour yourself out, pour yourself out, and not, not get enough in return to make it all worth it, right? But if the God of the universe has poured himself out for you, that's going to make you pursue the health of other people. That's going to make you just overflow with wanting to pour yourself out for others. That's going to make you excited to give yourself for the growth, for the good, for the love of other people around you. Not just in parenting, but in all our relationships. And really building a church is about figuring out how to do that, right? Building a church is figuring out how to love each other well, even though we're not really, you know, we're not blood, but we, we share by the blood of Christ a, a sense of family. We share, man, Christ has loved me, so I want to love other people. I want to love the people that don't know him around this town. I want to share with my, my brothers and sisters the love that he's given to us. Um, so he's talking about this anguish of childbirth, and he says, I, I want to see Christ formed in you. I, I found this picture here of a sculptor. Kyle was teasing me that this is Sean Connery sculpting. I don't think it's actually Sean Connery. He looks kind of like him, but uh, this is someone sculpting an Abraham Lincoln clay statue thing here. Any of you ever done any sculpting? Have you ever whittled, carved, sculpted? Raise your hand if you've done. Some of you have done that? Okay, it can be a, can be a painstaking process, right? It takes a long time. I did some sculpture in an art class in high school, and it's just little step after little step after little step. You know, it's a long time. You're pouring yourself out to try to shape this thing. And that's the, that's the kind of love that Paul feels towards these people. And I would encourage you um, to not try to take the, the microwave shortcut road to ministry, but just commit yourself to, to pursuing relational health, right? Just, just commit to pursuing relational health. Gospel-centered relationships pursue health, you're just going to slowly, step by step, care for each other. You're going to love each other. You're going to encourage each other. You're going to endure suffering. You're going to pour yourself out. You're going to be transparent. All, all of these things that are healthy relationships, you're going to love because God first loved you. And, and as you do that, you'll be, you'll be pursuing each other's health. You'll, you'll be helping each other grow. You'll be helping Christ to be formed in us. Uh, the same kind of idea, this forming concept is in Romans 12, 1 and 2. Where it says we shouldn't be conformed anymore to the habits of the world, but we should be transformed through the renewing of our mind. And so, so Paul has this concept in Romans 12 that because of all the, the great mercy of God, because of the gospel, everything that, that we've been learning in Galatians, because of God's goodness to us, his kindness to us, the richness that's been poured out uh, in Christ on the cross, because of that, we should be different. We should change. We should care enough about each other to, to challenge each other, to pursue health, uh, to pursue our own health. The picture in Romans 12, that renewing of the mind, uh, most people understand that process to be worked out as we continually entrust new areas of our life over to God through the study of his word, through understanding more deeply who he is. I would encourage you to be a people that, that study God's word on your own, that, that read it. Like if you, if you find something, if you don't feel really equipped to, to read and study much of the scripture yourself, if you find something on Sunday uh, that is clear, that helps you to get it, God loves you, then memorize it, right? Just pour over it, reread it, write it down and begin reading other parts of the scripture and begin branching out and begin building that into your life as a habit of I'm going to pursue my own health as I seek to pursue other people's health by being renewed 
by learning God's word, by understanding how great his love is for me. I say another way that this could, could look at a, at a new church is just commitment. Um, I don't know how many of you guys are committed uh, at our church. I know we're very similar in personality just because of the time Kyle and I have spent together. Uh, we really work hard at being an inviting environment, you know, just being an open, casual environment. But the, the dark side of being casual as a church is that you've got a lot of people that maybe aren't committed, right? Because we don't want to impose. We don't want to ask a lot of you. We want to be welcoming. But I encourage you, one of the best ways to grow in health and to pursue each other's health is to actually commit. Is just be like, I'm in. I'm in. What can we do? So that it's not, uh, it's not the Kyle Black Church or the Daniel and Lacey Church or the, you know, whoever leads in different areas of the church. It's not, it's not their church. It's, it's your church. It's our church. You know, the, the word church in the New Testament means the people of God. It doesn't mean a building. It doesn't mean a leadership structure. It means everybody. So, so, so you are the church. I encourage you as you pursue each other's health to become more and more committed to each other. To pray. Just God, how, how can I help the people around me grow? How can I encourage them to take next steps? What does that look like to commit ourselves more to each other, more to the service of God's word and God's priorities in this community. So that would be, that would be my, my heart for you as, as a young church. Y'all are in a great spot. I think God is doing great stuff here. Uh, I'm encouraged uh, just to see the reality. You know, it's just, just great to be here in person, to, to meet real people. You know, as I said at the beginning, be, be encouraged. God is doing a supernatural work here. This is crazy that people would gather together on a weekend to spend time together learning God's word praising Jesus together. That's just crazy. That's not how the world works. So just recognize the, the beauty of that. That's a good thing. That's a healthy thing that's going to help you guys encourage each other in gospel-centered relationships. Just my final charge to you uh, to wrap up would be this. What kind of relationships do you have now? What kind of relationships do you have now? And what are next steps that you could take to begin really trusting in your own heart God loves me, so, so what do I need to do to love the, the people around me? What, what does that look like to have gospel-centered friendships, to have gospel-centered relationships in my family, to have gospel-centered relationships uh, in the church, to have gospel-centered relationships with the people that I work with and the cubicle next to me, my neighbors? What, what are the next steps that I could take? And begin really honestly praying that God would lead you in that process. Let me pray for us.